So I want to begin by, by going back. Uh, Dr. Clausen served in the nation of Russia to help plant a uh, seminary there. And I'd like him to tell us a bit more about that work um, as a missionary in Russia. Yes. So from 2001 to 2013, my wife and I and our family, uh, we lived in a city called Samara, which is 600 miles east-southeast of Moscow. You probably haven't heard of Samara, but for Russians, uh, the city of Samara is pretty important. It's the the uh, was for many years uh, the uh, aerospace capital, and so it was closed to foreigners even until the late 90s. Uh, they built the Soyuz rockets there. So if you're familiar with space technology and Russian tech. Uh, the the Soyuz rockets were built there. In fact, we lived for a while on a street where just a quarter of a block away from us, we could see it out of our window as a monument there, a real Soyuz rocket that had been built by the workers of the city to, to, to honor the city. Uh, and so it was there, and you could go and walk underneath it, and it was a pretty impressive thing. So we lived there for, for 12 years, and, and the issue is, well, how did we get there? Well, at the end of the 1990s, uh, several leaders from the, the Russian Baptist denomination, the, the major Baptist denomination there, visited Grace Community Church, uh, and, and they had a small conference there at Grace Community Church for uh, the leadership of that denomination. And uh, that's where one of the pastors got to know John MacArthur personally, and spent some time looking at how Grace Church has organized its ministry. He went back to his home church in uh, in the city of Samara, a historic church. It's been in existence for 130 years. Um, and his time with with uh, Pastor John and, and looking at the ministry of Grace Community Church really changed his his whole approach. So he went back to his church. One of the things that is common in a lot of historic Russian churches is that the pulpit is a tiny little thing off to the side. Music and the choir was, would be big, big focus, uh, would be a big focus within the Russian evangelical church. Well, the first thing he did was build a big pulpit and, and put it right smack dab in the, in the middle of the worship center or the, the building uh, to symbolize that the Word of God is going to be central, the instruction from the Word of God is going to be central. So he went back and he changed his ministry from a topical approach to preaching to Bible exposition. And then also it was on his heart that he would somehow start to train expositors. And an invitation arose from that to the leadership of Grace Community Church and the Master's Seminary that they would help him in establishing a school to train church leaders in uh, Bible exposition and pastoral ministry. And so he sent a letter uh, to Pastor John essentially saying, come over and help. And so the leadership of Grace Community Church started to look for men who could go over and be part of that. And I happened to be uh, in a Master of Theology program at the Master's Seminary at the time. And so in the very end part of 1999, I was asked to consider... Uh, going over to Russia, moving over there after I finished my studies. And I took a uh, short trip there in January of 2000 and came back and told my wife that's where we need to go. And then in 2001, uh, we uh, we moved there. We had one child at the time. My wife was pregnant with our second, and and uh, we started a new chapter of our lives there. 
And our goal right from the start was to establish, you could call it a seminary. It would be a local church-based ministry for the training and discipleship of of men for ministry. Uh, and, and so our goal was to establish that and, and turn it over to Russian national leadership. And uh, through various circumstances, the Lord uh, made that happen. Uh, by 2013, we had had problems with the government, and the government wanted us out. And so it was uh, a kind of a forced transition. Uh, we had a whole ministry team there, several other missionary families. We've, we all had to leave. Uh, but by that time, the Lord had raised up some very, very good uh, men, Russian men, who could uh, take on the ministry. It was difficult because I really loved it there, and I really didn't want to go. I, I uh, There was uh, the, the former dean at the Master's Seminary kept asking me, when are you going to come back, when are you going to come back? And I said, I don't want to, I love it here. And, and finally, uh, the Lord brought it about so that the, the government uh, started making problems for us, and so uh, we had to leave. But it was good for the Russian team there as well, because they didn't want us to go either. And for us just to pack up and leave would, was not very... Well, it just wasn't rational, because there were so many ministry opportunities there. And, and by 2013, my Russian language was getting fairly good and, and could do so much and so many opportunities. Why would we leave that? there's too too much to do. But when the Lord brought the government problems, it just became apparent to all of us that he was doing this. It was time for us to go, time for the Russians to step up. The school still exists today. In fact, I think this year it might have its largest enrollment ever. They're doing a fantastic job of training nationals for ministry. Yeah, that's great the way uh, things happen there. You raise enough people from there and yeah. they take it over. Um, you know, with the war going on, we've heard in the States, um, basically the messaging has been Putin bad, Zelensky good, support Ukraine, not Russia. Could you tell us, maybe fill in more to that, uh, Mr. to say based on your experience, and then maybe bring the word of God to bear on how we ought to view the war there right now? Yeah, that's a very difficult question, and sadly what's happening today is that uh, the... Uh, Russian believers and the Ukrainian believers are are starting to fight amongst each other. And so if you have uh, Russian immigrants here, Ukrainian immigrants, there's there's tension between them, even though they're, you know, they're they're brothers. They're they're the Slavic people. They're the same ethnicity. So it's not an ethnic thing. Uh, it's it's a geopolitical uh, language issue uh, difference between them. And so what's happening because of that that um, uh, war that's going on there is that you have a situation where the the Russian believers are are trying to be supportive of, of their government and to be even in some senses patriotic and uh, and, and submit to their leaders. And then on the one hand, you have the Ukrainian believers who are saying to their Russian brothers and sisters, why aren't you denouncing your government? They're killing our people and destroying our country. And so it, it leads to a lot of very, very difficult moments and, and uh, division, you could say, even between members of the church. Uh, in a Very simply, in the big picture... Uh, you know, the media has a tendency to, to oversimplify things. Uh, 
and the media will get onto you know some some direction of thinking and saying this is what it's all about. There's a lot going on there. I do think that there is um, there are more bigger issues than simply Russia wanting Ukrainian territory and trying to expand the empire. Uh, there is very much a sense in which Russia is uh, realizing that that the West, not only as a collection of forces or nations, but as an ideology, which it sees as very secular and uh, dehumanizing in some ways, uh, is is making its advance. And it wants to, at least as it states it uh, officially, it wants to, to, to stop the advance in some ways. There's political issues with Things going on behind the scenes with the American interference or American influence on on Ukraine, which is is not virtuous in all accounts. Uh, there's a lot of uh, American corruption in Ukraine. It's a funnel for money. So the billions that you you are now we are now needing to pay back in taxes, it goes to Ukraine and disappears, and it fills a lot of American politicians' pockets and whatnot all. Uh, the war industry, military industry, there's a, there's just so many things going on there. Uh, but at the same time, Russia is, is, uh, an evil empire too. You know, Putin is no, uh, godly man. Uh, and ambitions there are, uh, strong and evil and wicked and what's going on, uh, in their response to all that is, is horrendous as you see the destruction of U- Ukrainian villages and cities and lives. Very, very sad. And so what I, what I tell people who ask me is that, you know, avoid, uh, trying to make this a patriotic thing. Just have your hearts break for what's going over there for the people. Uh, and, uh, help or, or use this to r- remind yourself that we are not citizens of this world. Our job is, is not, and it refers to other contexts as well. Our job is not to advocate, um, certain uh, ventures or whatever. Ours is to preach the gospel and to hold out hope to people. Uh, and uh, um, our hope is not in, in military conquests, but in the spread of the gospel as we see lives changed by that. So what I would recommend that you do and you interact with uh, Ukrainians and Russians here is... Uh, just have a lot of compassion for both sides. What we've noticed is that uh, even in interaction with the Russian people just in the community in Southern California is that uh, they feel threatened uh, that uh, because they bear the name Russian or speak Russian that they're going to be attacked. And you just want to be... Remember that they're a person, that, that, that he or she is a person. Uh, and, and, you know, not take out frustration on what the government is doing on, on individuals instead hold up the hope of the gospel to them. You want to have a lot of compassion on the Ukrainians and, and help where you can. Uh, but it is just a very sad, uh, sad thing. And, uh, we want to pray for the churches in both countries, uh, that they would see this as a wonderful opportunity to, to preach the gospel. Yeah. I'd like to ask a few questions concerning, um, roles of, of men and women, things that, that we may we yeah. bump up against in our culture here more frequently. Um, there's some, some terms that have been used, uh, maybe even more recently, some of them gaining traction in modern debates, um, complementarian, egalitarian, I've heard the word patriarchal used more yeah. 
more regularly recently. Could you talk about some of the, the biblical distinctions between men and women and, and what some of those terms mean? Yeah. Yeah, what we're seeing in the broader culture today is really the uh, the the fruit of the radical feminism that that spread so much in the 60s and 70s and now it's now now you have the the children of that movement in the in the transgender movement uh, where it always you know just keeps moving in terms of suppression of truth and and depravity and and when you erase the distinctions that God has created on on the basis of physiology on the basis of the, the the programming that God has put in our DNA for men and women in our DNA and the hormones and in our in our physical bodies you erase distinctions and you are you're led to the place where that does not mean anything nothing at all and we see that in the transgender movement and what has happened in the evangelical church is that those churches and movements that first bought into feminism in the 60s and 70s, this idea that, you know, whatever a man can do, a woman can do, and maybe even better. Uh, you're, you know, that those who got on that train now are realizing, okay, this is naturally going to lead us to, even to the idea of transgenderism, where now we can't even talk about the sexes. We can't even talk about male and female because distinction has been erased not only in function, but also the distinction of male and female is being erased in essence. And a lot of churches now, especially mainline churches, are, are going down that path, and it's, it's really sad to see that. And quite simply, the, the Bible does not recognize feminism. It does not recognize uh, transgenderism, and those things are really the, the product of the depraved mind. From the beginning, God made them male and female. Right from the beginning, distinctions were given not by Adam or the initial inhabitants of the earth as they tried to figure out, okay, how are we going to order society? But God determined them to be male and female. And He was gracious in that He, to, to show that distinction, uh, he did it such that our physiology would reflect that distinction. And that the, uh, the, the strength of a society, the strength of, of humanity would be upheld by recognizing those distinctions, appreciating them, honoring them, and so on and so forth. Uh, and that has, um, that of course is, is being erased. Uh, today, you know, what we need to do as, as, uh, Biblical Christians is not be afraid of, of of affirming and honoring those distinctions, and you just look at what's happening in the the direction of transgenderism and the idea that your understanding of male and female is simply something you determine for yourself. You see where that's going, and it's hopelessness. It's it's uh, uh, it's just darkness. Uh, and instead, we know that when the distinctions are upheld and honored, that's where beauty is, and that's where structure and stability and hope and and uh, identity uh, are found. And uh, we have those answers, and so we, we dare not 
be intimidated by the culture that wants to threaten us with lawsuits and wants to threaten us with all kinds of name-calling, your misogynists, your bigots, etc., etc. Don't let that bother you. Have compassion for the lost. Uh, have, a, have a heart of, of sadness for those who are confused. Uh, but um, don't hesitate to speak in, in biblical terms, men and women, and, and, and male and female, and recognizing the differences and distinctions and function that God has given an important text in this way is is First uh, Corinthians. Sadly, because it deals with head coverings, it's a text that a lot of uh, a lot of uh, uh, Christians avoid. But it is a text that is very apropos to the current transgender and sexual confusion uh, that we have. Because what Paul emphasizes here is the issue of 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 very absolute distinctions. Uh, between men and women. Let me read 1 Corinthians, beginning in verse 1 uh, of uh, chapter 11. It says, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you because you remember me and everything and hold firmly to the traditions, just as I delivered them to you. Now when he's referring to traditions there, he's not just talking about man-made things. The word tradition there is special, a special kind of tradition. That's apostolic teaching the oral traditions that were created by the apostles' sermons. So the Corinthians here were were upholding apostolic teaching, just as Paul had delivered it to them. But he says, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. So in, in that verse, very clear that distinctions and authority structure is not something that came about as a result of the fall. This is very much part of the divine design that the incarnate Christ, uh, through the incarnation, there is a submission through the incarnation of the Christ, Jesus, to God and that there is also a, an authority structure with man, man being the head of a woman. And then he goes on to say this. Now notice how this is to be reflected in, in, the, uh, uh, in, in, the, in the look of society. So, so in appearance. He goes on to say, verse 4, Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head, but every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also cut off her hair. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is in the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for woman's sake, but woman for man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority over her head or on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor man is independent of woman. And he goes on and and, uh, emphasizes that within the context of the church, and I I know we've got a lot of questions to get into, I don't want to go too far into this one, but in the context of the church, Men are to look like men and women are to look like women. Now we have to be careful in in realizing that in every culture there's different clothing and there are even different looks. 
so if you're, you know, a Scotsman, you wear a kilt. Uh, but I would tell you, if you're here wearing a kilt today, you'd look a little bit, uh, you know, feminine maybe. Uh, so every culture is going to have certain dress. But the issue is, in that culture, when you're in the church, Paul is saying, the men need to look like men, and the women need to look like women, and there needs to be the recognition of authority structure in that church where there is the authority that is recognized as, as inherent in man, submission in, in, as inherent in, in the women, that that is not wrong, that's a divine design. And he goes on to say, as he d- does there, that there is mutual independence. He's, he's affirming, as he does elsewhere, that it, it, we're all heirs of Christ and mutually dependent. But still, for the glory of God, there are to be distinctions. Men are to look like men, women are to look like women, men are to have functions related to authority, women are to have functions related to submission. And that's not wrong. We dare not shrink back from that. That is the divine design. Um, now, does that give man the opportunity to sin? Absolutely not. Does that give man the opportunity to abuse authority? Absolutely not. Uh, so we have, as men have to police each other in this. And when we see each other mishandling this reality and mishandling our authority, we need to come down as hard as possible on those kinds of men because they are dishonor and disgrace to the Lord and the beauty of authority that God has created. Uh, but we are not to shrink back from our, our roles and responsibilities. Now, in terms of what we call it, you know, egalitarianism is the idea that everything's equal. And egalitarianism is eventually sliding off into the abyss of transgenderism. Because if you're equal in, in everything, then why the gender in the first place? It doesn't have an answer to that question. Complementarianism uh, is, is a fine definition in as far as it goes, in that it realizes there's differences. We complement each other. But a problem now with some of the soft complementarianism that exists today is we find that more and more some complementarianisms, some complementarianists are just looking like the egalitarians of the 1970s. They, they, they're compromising so much that, um, you know, they're, they're not really upholding the biblical teaching. So you, you have efforts to try and rein that in and say, no, let's, let's celebrate the differences. And so some are calling themselves, uh, Patriarch, patriarchal or uh, patriarchists or whatever the, the terminology is for that. A lot of baggage with that, and so some don't like that term either. I was talking with Owen Strand uh, a couple months ago, and he said, I like the term kephalists. Kephale in Greek means head, so maybe that's the best term. It doesn't have any baggage because nobody knows what it means. And sometimes... Sometimes that's the best thing. You know, no one knows what it means, so let's create a term, and then you, you start off with no baggage. But how do you spell that? You know, it's kind of like, uh, I don't know either. Um, I just say this, you know, I, if you want to call yourself complementarian, great. If you want to call yourself patriarchal, great. Just be careful to define the terms for people. Don't make assumptions. And always emphasize this, that yes, the general pattern is authority. Of the, the man is in the position of authority in the family and the church. The woman in the position of submission. But be careful to explain. It does not mean there is an essential difference. We are all co-inheritors of grace. Um, we are equally valuable as the redeemed in the eyes of our Savior. Um, and th- there, 
is with those who have authority the greater responsibility. And that means that as much as we recognize our job to lead our families, to create the climate in our home, that's a man's thing to do, not a woman's. It's a man's thing to create the environment. The general spiritual environment is the man's responsibility. Uh, And that means responsibility, and to whom much has been given, much will be required. It should be such that you respect and, and, and recognize what's at stake so much that, that, that you actually would prefer to be the woman so that not so much was resting on your shoulders in terms of your answer to the Lord. That's how you need to look at it. Not something where you beat your chest and say, I'm the man, I get to, to determine how what, what, what I want things to look like. No, to whom much has been given, much is required. The greater responsibility is on your shoulders as men. And that should keep you very humble and very servant-minded so that those women who are in the church and in your families would see you as such a humble leader that they have no problem in submitting. That's the kind of environment we need to create. And to bring First Corinthians 11 head coverings into this retreat, <laughs> oh, no. that's worth the price of admission. So. <laughs> that's a difficult passage. That's why I say that. Uh, lots of challenges in interpreting that, but... It's a good sign when a man can go there to illustrate his point. Yeah, and I, I do think that the, the primary purpose there in 1 Corinthians 11 is actually not the head coverings. The primary purpose is the distinctions. The visible manifestation that we recognize the difference between men who are to have authority and women who are to be in submission. How does that look in the church? You can get hung up on, you know, is it a little tiny, you know, uh, little plate covering thing on the head or is it something that, you know, wraps around the whole face? You know, people get all wrapped up in that. Is it hair or is it material cloth, etc.? Uh, no, that's, that's a secondary issue. What we first need to recognize the dominant idea is the divinely ordained distinction between the sexes in the church. How is, how is that manifest? And just kind of a side note on that. In, in a lot of the Russian churches, the older churches, uh, the head coverings was a, was a staple there. But I tell you what, I knew a lot of women who wore head coverings who were not submissive by any stretch. But because they wore that, they believed that they were honoring the scriptures. And I just said, you're following the, the letter of it, but not the spirit. And so there's no there's no virtue in that. Might as well just take off the head covering because it doesn't mean anything. And while we're on this topic, talking to, to husbands, what would you say would be, you know, what's some wisdom? What's the top three things that a man ought to do or say for his wife every week? Uh, pray for your wife, number one. Uh, you recognize your intercessory role. Uh, number two. Uh, you have to set the priority in your own life uh, that the Lord and His Word and His will is is your is, is what determines everything in your life. You recognize you are under God. She needs to see that. Uh, and if she doesn't see that you are under God, as Paul has even said here, you're under Christ. It's not going to matter much what else you do. You're going to be a hypocrite. So you, you've got to ensure that, that your lifestyle shows through your actions, your speech, your general attitude, that you're a man under authority. And then second, or thirdly, uh, then you have to, to cultivate uh, that spiritual nurturing in her, and that would come from Ephesians chapter 5, when Paul says, love your wife 
as Christ loved the church. And then he builds out from that, how does that look? He talks about how Christ sanctifies his church uh, through the washing of water, a reference to um, the sanctifying power, you know, in, in the literal sense, the water cleanses and, and sets apart. Uh, but in the spiritual sense, it is God's truth, the word of Christ, that, that sanctifies us, that, that makes the cut from worldliness in the flesh and dedicates us, consecrates us to the Lord. So you have to uh, make sure that that's a part of your home, that every week uh, you're, you're sanctifying your wife by ministering the word of God to her. And that doesn't mean you sit her down for a half-hour sermon. You know, that, that's not what we're talking about it, it means through your interaction with her, you're constantly uh, pointing her attention to the Word of God, to the clear instruction that's there. When questions come up, you have a biblical approach to making decisions. When it deals with the discipline of the children, you're, you're saying, okay, what does the Word of God say on this? You're encouraging her to read. You're encouraging her to be discipled by other godly women who are older than her. So you're, you're cultivating that, that dynamic uh, within her life. Excellent. Thank you. Um, you know, reflecting back on last night's message and some of the questions that we received, uh, a takeaway from last night was the, the importance of beginning with God. Um, God is light. I want to. I definitely want to, to be holy personally. We want to apply this practically, but we want to start with with God and God's holiness. Um, you know, for men who are maybe less familiar with handling the Bible. Um, how do they begin? Where do they go? Uh, how do we, I guess to say it one way, make Scripture work? How can I open up the Bible and, 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 and see a greater vision of God from His Word? What are just some practical tips for, for a guy to do that? Great question. First of all, I would say this. Uh, don't be intimidated by the Bible in the wrong way. Uh, some guys will approach the scriptures and they'll start reading and they'll say, I don't understand a lot of this. Why, why is this census in the Bible? And you know, why are all these instructions about create, building a tabernacle here? I, I don't get it. And so they'll, they'll think that because they don't understand all of those details, that they, it's, it just isn't for them. They're not wired for it. And, and you have to humble yourself and realize that uh, you, know, you don't need to understand everything in it. Approach the Bible and, and, and in your, your reading of it, approach it and just say, okay, for today as I'm reading it, I, I just need to understand something a little better. I don't need to understand everything. Just something a little bit better. So don't be afraid to open the, the Bible and to read and, 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 and not understand everything in it. Uh, be humble. And, uh, don't, don't, don't shrink back from having your ego constantly assaulted by how much you don't know. That's a good thing. So that's number one. Don't don't fear it. Just start reading. Just do it. That is something that everyone, thankfully, in our society can do. Although the you know schools today are graduating a lot of people who can't read anymore, but you know everybody here can read, uh, and that's something you can do. And, and sometimes guys will, will struggle with sanctification and they'll say, what, what can I do? And they'll say, read the Bible. Well, what do you mean, well? That's the, that is actually from a skill standpoint the simplest thing and yet it is the most helpful thing. Just start reading. And every time you, you go, you, you pray, 
you pray throughout your reading and, and your prayer is, Lord, open my eyes and teach me something that I don't understand yet. Help me understand something better. Simple prayer, simple approach, do that. A second piece of counsel I would give you is this. Read more in the Old Testament. I think it was Martin Lloyd-Jones who said one of the reasons why we have such a low view of God today is because we as Christians have such a New Testament priority approach. And so we're just reading about the life of Christ and, and his accomplishment and the witness of the apostles. And, and certainly we are New Covenant believers, and so there is that sense of... of um, urgency and immediacy and practical practicality in the New Testament. But we have the whole Bible. And we have to remember uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for training, so that the man of God may be fully equipped, ready for every good work. We have so neglected the Old Testament that, that that portion of Scripture, which really establishes the perfections of God, it, it's been neglected, and so we have a very superficial view of God. And we are, we are more familiar with the humanity of Jesus, which looks so much like us in the sense that flesh and bones, and he was created like his brothers, and we focus on that. But we just don't understand the divine nature. We, we don't understand deity. And that's going to come through a deeper study of the Old Testament. So even with respect to God's holiness, I would say um, read more of the Old Testament than you're doing right now. In fact, it's interesting. This year in, in our men's ministry at Grace Church, I'm teaching on the attributes of God. Uh, we call it the, you know, no one like him, a study in the perfections of God. And it's amazing that when you look for the biblical testimony to the to the perfections of God, the place where you find your richest proof texts, and I, I mean that in a good sense, it's, it's in the Old Testament. That's where the doctrine of God is forged. So read more in the Old Testament. Another piece of counsel would be this, uh, as, you, as you think of developing that that uh, higher view of God. There is some excellent literature that has been produced on this. And I'd encourage you to read a lot in the doctrine of God. Uh, there's a lot of work that has been being, that is being printed these days on all kinds of practical issues. Uh, and I, I think it's being overdone and I think men are reading too much in those practical areas. I really do. And, uh, I, because I would assert to you that, that, uh, a lot of the problems you face are not resolved just by getting three keys to do this or four secrets to do that. In fact, I would even say this, the challenges that we face in our marriages and in our personal walk are, are going to be ultimately solved in the doctrine of God, not in these practical keys. So a, a lot of times when I ask guys, how are you studying the doctrine of God? They'll, they'll confess you know, various sins, anger, materialism, lust. And I'll say, okay, how are you studying the doctrine of God? And the question is like, what? I, I'm, I'm talking about lust. I say, well, exactly. How are you studying the doctrine of God? Well, I'm not. Well, there's your problem. So instead of looking at all the literature that is being printed on, on those things, and, and I'm not writing that off completely. There are some really good helps there that you need to read. But read much more uh, of these great books on the doctrine of God. 
There's one work that uh, impacted me greatly, even tied to what we talked about last night, R.C. Sproul's The Holiness of God. How many of you have read it? And, and it's not, I'm trying, not trying to pull you or, or throw you guys under the bus here, but a few of you had, uh, have read it. It's uh, probably Sproul's most classic work. I read it when I needed to. I was in college and I was dating my wife. And, you know, in that time of life, there's so many temptations. And that was a savior for me. Reading R.C. Sproul's The Holiness of God. That's what I needed at that time in my life. I still have the book. Uh, and in fact, I just opened it uh, earlier this week. I taught on the holiness of God on Wednesday. A lot of the stuff that I taught last night came from that, from our men's ministries. I, I coincided that so that I could be fresh on the topic. But I opened it up earlier this week as I was preparing for Wednesday night, and I just reflected on, oh, the precious insights and lessons and moments of love and adoration and confession that I had when I went through R.C. Sproul's book some 27, 26 years ago, 28 years ago now. So get R.C. Sproul's book. It's it's uh, everywhere, easy to get. You can get video materials when he taught through it. You can see the young R.C. Sproul. That's worth it. You know, he's with the Lord now, but he, he taught those, I think, back in the 80s maybe. And so he had this big hairdo and, and he's thin and, you know, so... Uh, Get that. But there are other books, too, on the attributes of God. A.W. Pink has a great book on the attributes of God. Uh, you have some of the Puritans. Thomas Watson, A Body of Divinity, really good on the attributes of God. Uh, make that your your passion. Uh, so, I, you know, those would be some of the, the things that I'd recommend. Um, another question came in uh, concerning um, holiness. Will believers be holy in heaven? Colossians chapter 3, verse 12 indicates that we are holy and beloved as is chosen. Is holiness attainable or is it unattainable? Yeah. Uh, when we talk about the quality of moral purity, remember when we talk about holiness with God, we're talking about absolute transcendence. We'll never have that aspect. We, we won't... We, that attribute of God or that aspect of it is not communicated to us. But a secondary aspect of it is, a, a, a consequential feature of that is, and that's moral purity. God is a cut above everything that's polluted. He's separate from it. And that we are in several ways. I would say it in, we are going to experience this as humans, the redeemed, in three ways. First of all, in our position that we are already called saints. And Paul even refers to the Corinthians when he writes to them as saints. How can you refer to the Corinthians as saints? Uh, Paul was, was a man of faith, I tell you. A lot of us would say, no way, these are fleshly, immature believers. But Paul calls them saints, and that word saint is related to the word holy. It refers to a position that the believers, of those who have been regenerated and justified, they have been set apart. They have been cut out of the world in a positional sense. And that's what they possessed in their position, in their standing before God. And we today, if we're in Christ right now, it happened to us the moment of our regeneration. We were set apart. We were sanctified. We were made holy positionally. So we already have that. That's not something that's experiential. It is something, though, that is true. 
that is something that is true uh, in our position. Uh, the first kind of holiness. The second kind of holiness is the practical holiness, that which we do experience. And that is something which is growing over time. And like I said, in the current life that we have, that's a mixture of things. There are times when it ebbs and flows. We know those moments, two step forward, one step back. Some valleys we go through. Sometimes we go through prolonged periods of disobedience. And so there's a, there's a rockiness to it, but there is a gradual, there is a gradual increase for all believers in that. Uh, and that's practical holiness. It's imperfect in this life, though it is, is growing. And then there is the final, uh, holiness that we will, uh, experience. And that is perfect holiness. And that awaits us in glory. Uh, first John talks about it actually in chapter three. When we see him, we will be like him. Uh, Paul talks about it. In fact, I, I turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 5, a beautiful, wonderfully encouraging text. 1 Thessalonians 5. Uh, Paul prays for this kind of final, perfect holiness in chapter 5, verse 23 and 24. Notice his prayer. May the God of peace himself sanctify you. There's that word. It's the Greek word that would be same as holy. It's, it's the same root idea. May he make you holy entirely. And may your spirit, soul, and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now here's the wonderful promise that goes with that. And we often forget verse 24. Faithful is he who calls you. Faithful is the one who calls you to this perfection. Uh, and he will also bring it to pass. He's going to do it. So if you already are positionally holy, you have a 100% guarantee you stake your whole life on this reality that one day you will be made practically, perfectly holy. But there's a process in which we get there, and it's in the Christian life, it is a process. In this life, no, we will never, we will never experience that because as John requires in 1 John 3, we have to see him. Uh, to, if you turn there, and, you know, I'll come back to this later after lunch, but 1 John 3, uh, John explains when this perfect holiness will be achieved and there's a very important circumstance that is, is connected with that. See chapter 3 verse 1, 1 John. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God. There's our positional holiness right there. And such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. So that's verse 1, speaking of positional holiness, our standing. Then verse 2, beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when when he appears, we will be like him. Because we will see him just as he is. There's the perfect holiness. And it only comes at the moment that we see Jesus in reality. Whether it's by death or by his coming for us. And then verse 3 has the, has the pursuit of holiness in practical living. Verse 3 says, And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Made pure by standing, verse 1. 
will be pure in perfection, verse 2. Being made pure in a process, verse 3. Helpful distinctions. Um, Titus 2 is going to give instructions to older men and to younger men. And when that passage is read, it sounds like God has a plan for different seasons of our lives. Um, so I would say, do you see some unique distinctions in our duties as men as we age? And then how would you practically describe what, what God wants us to be doing in each of these seasons, if, if there are differences? You know, I don't really see so much as Paul making a distinction in what he's requiring at different stages of life. Instead, as Paul writes to Titus, Titus has been given the responsibility of completing what still remains in the structuring and order of the churches. Paul and Titus had been on a missionary trip on the island of Crete. The year would have been AD 64. And uh, Paul, for some reason, had to leave early. And so he leaves Titus behind, and there's things to do in the church, uh, in the churches. And one of them is to set elders in place. But beginning in in chapter 2, the other aspects relate to teaching the different categories of people what their responsibilities are as part of the body of Christ. And so in chapter 2, Paul takes what's called a household code. In those days, there's very much a kind of a, a, a style of addressing responsibilities within the home. It was called the household code. And everybody in the home had their own specific responsibilities. This is how they had to conduct themselves. Paul takes that and he kind of empties it of all its Roman paganism stuff, philosophical stuff. And Paul takes that same approach, though, and says, in the, in the household of faith, this is how everybody's to conduct themselves. And he does address the different sexes, male and female, and the different age groups, because there, there was the idea of, of um, you know, different people doing different things, different struggles, different times of life, and Paul addresses it all. He begins with the older men, then he goes to the older women. Older men would have been in that age, late 40s and older. Remember that they didn't have a very long life expectancy, so old age started late 40s. Uh, I'm late 40s, I, I don't like to feel old. Uh, so I think because we have a longer life expectancy, the age would be different for us. So, no. In that day and age, it, it would be late 40s and older, you're an older man. Late 40s and older, you'd be an older woman. And in younger than that, it's younger men and women. Paul first addresses the men, Paul first addresses the women, then the young women, then the older, or then the young men. Now, what's very interesting to note here is that most, not all, but most of the qualities Paul prescribes to the different categories are very much the same as what he prescribed of the elder candidates. Um, in, in that, these are moral qualities. Now, there's some exceptions for the younger women. They are to love their husbands, which means to be affectionate to their husbands, affectionate to their children, to be sensible, pure. Those ones are for everyone. But then workers at home, kind, that one's for everyone, being subject to their own husbands. The word of God will not be dishonored. Uh, Paul is simply emphasizing that no matter what category of life, there are expectations for those within the household of the faith, that they would be striving for spiritual maturity. The elders are to already manifest this in concrete ways in practical living. So if if they're not already living this way, they cannot be an elder. 
The elders are there in the church, verse 5 to 9 of chapter 1, to be the blueprint for both men and women for how one grows in the faith. This is how it looks to be a Christian. But then when he gets to chapter 2, he says, now I'm going to address everybody and say, you know what? There's no exceptions. What I require to the elders, really those same requirements apply to everybody. That's what it means to be mature in the faith. So older men, these are some of the problems that you have. And it's, you know, we have it in our society today. We have grumpy old men. So what does Paul do? He says, you know what, old men? You're to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in perseverance, and so on. So he deals with the problems that old men deal with. Then he deals with the problem that old women deal with. Then he deals with the problem that younger women deal with. And and then he deals with the problem that young men deal with. And all of this is to say, hey, look, you know what? The, the, the Word of God is to have a sanctifying effect in you. You're not to, to stagnate in your growth, nor are you just to imitate the culture around you. This is the picture you're to strive after. Thank you. I do want to ask about one category that I believe we've created here in the West uh, in terms of seasons, and that's the season of retirement. And for good or ill, we have a retirement. We, we uh, I think, very much aim for and look forward to retirement. But could you give us a biblical view of retirement? I, I think you would uh, go to the book of Proverbs uh, for uh, that. Uh, there, In the book of Proverbs, there is very much the idea that... Um, Older men, by walking a life of wisdom, are, are to enter into their their older years and enjoy the fruits of their labor. Very much, that's the the theology of Proverbs, and and I'd have to refresh my notes on that. I have taught through Proverbs before, and there's definitely that notion of it that gray hair is the crown, grandchildren are the reward. You, you, you don't enjoy the fruits of your labor before the labor. You enjoy it after the labor. So it very much is part of the theology of Proverbs. So uh, the concept of enjoying the fruits of your labor, is, I would say, is a biblical concept. Uh, and so I don't have a problem with retirement. Uh, and, and we can be thankful that, uh, you know, for those who can retire and, and enjoy those fruits, uh you know, we, we're, we're, we're thankful for that. It's a process of reaping what you sow. Um, and that's very much built into biblical logic. However, uh, retirement is never a season to let up in the pursuit of godliness. Coming back to Titus chapter 2, Paul addresses the older men and calls them to a high, high standard of morality. So retirement isn't that you just coast. You still run hard after God. Because you're running hard after holiness. So, retirement should not mean decreased church involvement, decreased church participation, decreased church attendance. Often it does. People are gallivanting around the world trying to accomplish their bucket list. Eh, you know what? None of that's going to compare with what we're going to do in glory. So, don't worry about that. Trust that heaven and the, the world to come, the new heavens, the new earth, even the millennial kingdom is going to be Wow, my bucket list is just nothing compared to what's going to be there. So going to see Victoria Falls in Africa or whatever, or you know, going to set foot on, on Antarctica, mm, that's nothing. 
We really need to believe that. So retirement isn't letting up in running hard after God. Moreover, uh, retirement is uh, to be uh, a time where because you are, are enjoying the fruits of your labor, you now want to pass on the wisdom to the young generation and to say to them, look, these are the lessons that I learned that were good and look at where it brought me today. I can retire and enjoy the season of my life. I don't have to work 10 hours a day, six days a week. I can actually retire and enjoy life with my wife and and not have to get up at four in the morning and not have to, you know, exert myself like this, deal with, you know, all kinds of problems of labor. Uh, and, and I want to explain to you why that is. And you can also explain all the hard lessons you've learned through the mistakes of not raising your children the right way, of the times that you've sacrificed and it wasn't worth it. So... Um, that's that's important. Your time in retirement, if you've done things right, you need to devote that to instilling in the young generation what they need to, to, to understand in making sense and living wisely in this treacherous world. Uh, so don't just leave your, you know, as, as John Piper would say, don't just have a life of collecting seashells. Uh, what, what's the value of that? Invested in the lives of young men. There's nothing better you can do in terms of what you steward than doing that. Yeah, that's excellent. Um, you know, thinking about the gospel, we, we understand that we need to believe the gospel to go to heaven. We understand that aspect of, of scripture and the importance that is to our eternity. Um, but is the gospel just something that we, we believed in the past? And then how's the gospel relevant to, to my life today? The gospel is something to be believed. The gospel is good news. It's a promise. That's what the gospel is. Be careful about making the gospel your obedience. The gospel is good news. It's the promise. It's the promise that if you believe in what the Lord Jesus Christ has done, you'll be saved. And so that's not just something that is for us in the depth of our lostness, when we hit rock bottom, and the only place we have to look is up. Although that's especially for those moments. But the gospel is for us afterward to remind us always that God has made promises to us, and he will keep them not on the basis of our efforts, but on the basis of his faithfulness to his word. So as we, even in this context, we need to remember it as we talk about pursuing holiness and living in the light, we need the gospel because it reminds us that it is that that our eternal destiny, that heaven and life with God, is is not based on our efforts of pursuing holiness. It's based on the gospel. Always remains that way. Now that doesn't mean we let up. It doesn't mean we don't pursue holiness. But it just we need that gospel message to keep reminding us. It's not about the boxes that I check. It's about God's promise to us. And he is faithful and true and will fulfill that promise. And, and therefore, it gives me a totally different view of my effort. And we need to have that proper view or we will very easily uh, start lapsing into man-centered uh, uh, religion. And, and that's, that's devastating in all kinds of ways. 
Moreover, we need the, the promise of the gospel because you know what? In your pursuit of holiness, you're not going to do it perfectly. You're going to stumble a lot. And if you don't have the gospel there that is always center in your thinking, that it's a promise to you, uh, you, you will become exceedingly discouraged. You'll, you'll get into introspection and you'll, you'll suffer from what the Puritans uh, would call melancholy. This kind of woe is me. And just, you'll walk around glum and, and downcast and, and so on and so forth, uh, if you're true about your progress. And, and that's also not the way we ought to live. And that's why I come back to a text like 1 Thessalonians, uh, when I preached through it earlier this year, or 2022, I was waiting to get to these verses. Uh, you know, may God Himself sanctify you, and may He do so entirely. And then verse 24, faithful is He who calls you, and He will also bring it to pass. That's the gospel. He's going to do it. And you rest in that. Thank you. Are we holding them up for lunch? They're ready for us? Great. That's a wonderful place to stop. A benediction from First Thessalonians. Let me pray for us, and we'll end it to have lunch together. Father, we are thankful for the abundance of wisdom you've given us in your word. There are so many scenarios and circumstances in our life we navigate, Lord. We're we're desperate for your wisdom. We're thankful for the gospel. We're thankful that you hold us. We pray, Father, for your blessing upon us as we continue our day together, that you would give us more wisdom through your word. I pray for this food we're about to enjoy, that you bless it to our bodies. Please give these men and their families good health in this time of sickness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.